Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, what kind of sunglasses do you wear? Well, currently, uh, my, my son is six years old. So I've been going through a spell here where I can really only wear uh, whatever kind of semi-garbage swag sunglasses come my way, you know, with various uh, brand names plastered to the side of them. Because inevitably, especially when he was younger, my son would have to get his hands on whatever kind of sunglasses I had in the car. So the sunglasses get smudged, sunglasses get scratched up, sunglasses get broken or just lost. And I was pretty good at losing sunglasses even before he came into my life. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that I'm working up to very soon reaching that point where I can actually buy a decent pair of sunglasses that will protect my eyes. Did you ever actually wear those company sunglasses we got? Did you oh, try those things time. on? I have like six the ones pairs that, of them. They yeah. like fold in half at the nose. Yeah, I, I got those immediately. But mainly I, I, I thought to myself, this is a great decoy brand because my <laughs> son is going to love like the Transformer-esque qualities of these sunglasses. Like, Here, break that one. Yeah, but I've ended up wearing them around anyway. So yeah, that's my story. Hopefully by the time I'm ready to actually get some decent sunglasses, we'll have some uh, like Back to the Future 2 sunglasses, you know, like the ones that you got as a prize uh, uh, at Pizza Hut back in the day when uh, that film first came out, except now these will be legit future sunglasses. You know, I was trying to think before we decided to do this episode, are sunglasses an invention or not? Do they count? Yeah, they count. I guess everything's an invention. Were we born with sunglasses? Well, we'll get into that. Uh, But yeah, it is difficult for us to imagine a time before sunglasses. How did Corey Hart keep track of the visions in his eyes? I don't know. How did Rowdy Roddy Piper see through the alien conspiracy? I guess, I, I don't know, he didn't. How did Terminator cover up his eye damage? Uh, that's a good point. Well, really, how did anyone ever uh, in the history of Earth manage to look cool at any given moment, much less shade their eyes from the vicious light of day? It's already telling that all the examples you point to are cultural ones. You're, mm-hmm. pointing, you're pointing to movies and stuff rather than talking about how would I get through my life without sunglasses. <laughs> well, that, this is going to be an important part, though, just the, the, the iconography of the sunglasses. Mm-hmm. And, and that will be more important later on in our discussion. But, and their, their psychological effects. Exactly. Into that. But initially here, you know, we're, we're, we're complicating the purpose of the sunglasses. Ba- ba- basically – the whole deal is the sun is bright. I disagree. <laughs> and while our eyelids do give us the ability to manipulate the amount of sunlight hitting our eyeballs, it also pays to have other options. And certainly we have the ability to look away from the sun, to hide from the sun, or to, to raise a, a hand or a forearm to block it. Uh, but that's dependent largely on, say, your environment. Mm-hmm. Like some environments are much brighter than others. What if you live in a place where, say, it's springtime and you're in a place with snow cover? Oh, I mean, yeah. The, the, the sun can be so bright in those cases because it's not only coming from above but reflecting off of the snow that you essentially cannot use your eyes in the environment. Right, because otherwise you, you can't just shade, wear a hat. You need to wear like a hat with two bills, right? One on top, one on the bottom. Um, it's coming from all directions. And you need to use your hands for other things. Mm-hmm. You're, an individual will need to to hunt or fish or craft, etc. You can't just go around with your hands up all the time. Um, when, I, when I think about 
the, the challenges of dealing with sunlight. Uh, and I'm, I'm always forced to just think about how amazing our eyelids are, though, for mm-hmm. manipulating light. Well, and our irises, of course. Yes. I mean, our pupils mm-hmm. contract when there's too much light, but there's a point at which they can't contract anymore and right. still see. And you have to depend on the eyelids. Uh, one, one example I always go to is there's a character in Larry McMurtry's novel Comanche Moon, and he, uh, he winds up uh, tortured uh, by um, uh, bandit... Uh, flares and they uh, they slice his eyelids off. Oh no. And they leave him for uh, for dead in the sun and he's you know half driven mad by the whole, whole ordeal. That's but, sick. Eyelids. Oh yeah, it is a it is a sick weird book. Um uh, I love it. It's my favorite uh Larry McMurtry <laughs> book. But um Afterwards, this character ends up constructing a pair of special sunglasses for himself uh, with these varying um, uh, varying levels of, of darkness mm-hmm. so that he can just click through them as he needs them depending on where he is. If he's uh, you know, indoors, outdoors, bright day, uh, you know, a cloudy day, etc. Mm-hmm. But I've, I always come back to that because it's like, yeah, if you had to recreate the functionality of your eyelids, what kind of invention would you have to uh, have to build? You got so many parts of your body that you really don't appreciate, but would if they were gone. Right. But enough about uh, Larry McMurtry's uh, cyborg westerns. Uh, let's let's just get down to sunglasses. What what is essential to a modern pair of sunglasses? What do you what do you need? As we're sort of deconstructing the the invention. Well, you need a frame to hold mm-hmm. them over the eyes, and you need lenses that will, in one way or another, filter the incoming light. They obviously can't be completely opaque. You need Mm -hmm. to be able to see through them. But they also need to stop some amount of bad stuff from getting in. Right. So, like, on a material level, it seems pretty straightforward. Um, uh, You know, glass itself is a rather old invention. We could – and we can revisit glass at some point in a future episode. But you find examples of this in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, Certainly, uh, crystals and other substances uh, were were known to to ancient people. So just the materials of, say – building something out of six. We can all imagine the sort of Flintstones-style spectacles or sunglasses that one could conceivably have, but invention is always about that moment where someone actually puts materials together and and creates something that has not existed before. So we're forced to, to, to ask that question, well, where do we really see the earliest indications of uh, to, to a certain extent, spectacles. We can't talk about sunglasses without talking about spectacles a little bit, but we're mostly concerned with sunglasses in this episode because they look cooler. Right. Focusing lenses, that, that's a story for another time. Yes. We're, I think we're dealing with a somewhat simpler story right now. Yes. Even though sunglasses might not have become uh, extremely popular around the world until after spectacles were widely used. But it's really too bad because they're, 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 uh, the sunglasses, especially our modern usage of them, they're, they're, they're really important. They really protect us. Well, think about the sunglasses you wear as a kind of radiation suit for your eyes. <laughs> think on that one for a second. Try, try to actually cognize the fact that good old-fashioned sunlight is literally radiation from a star. <laughs> that, that's a phrase that always echoes in my mind when it's really beaten down on my head. Um, And a good pair of sunglasses should do multiple things, right? They should decrease the intensity of the light reaching your eyes. So if it's a bright shining day or there's glare off of water or off of a reflective surface or something, you need light to reach your eyes in order to see, but you don't need so much of it. And when the number of lumens in your surroundings exceed what your eyes need in order to see, your iris muscles contract, they shrink your pupil, the shutter of your eye, and that admits less in, but eventually your pupils can't contract anymore. 
And then you have to try to limit more light by squinting your eyelids, but eventually you you run into problems there, right? Sometimes it's so bright that squinting becomes difficult or, you know, you're squinting so much you want to completely close your eyes. Now, the other thing that's important for sunglasses to do is decrease or eliminate ultraviolet radiation when, when that's coming at your eyes. Now, there's really no benefit to getting ultraviolet radiation in your eyes, whereas you need the visible light that comes in from the sun in order to see your surroundings. You don't really need UV light at all. And so if sunglasses can reduce or even completely eliminate UV exposure to your eyes, that's a good thing because your eyes can be injured by UV exposure. But as we were saying earlier, also let's not ignore the fact that sunglasses are a very profound style choice and play a psychological and cultural role as well. I think people often wear sunglasses as much for style and psychological reasons as they do for uh, for reducing glare and reducing UV exposure. In any event, you're going to want a good pair of sunglasses before you go out to, say, a sporting event, right? Uh, for a number of reasons, because it's, you're, you're outdoors, it, it may be very bright. Uh, and then it's also a, a social engagement. You know, you, you want to look cool uh, uh, to the other fans or their f- friends and family that have traveled there with you. In the case of the dude, you can't go bowling without sunglasses. Exactly. Uh, so for our first uh, historical journey uh, in, in our attempt to understand uh, sunglasses of old, uh, let's go back uh, to the ancient Romans. Let's go to the Colosseum. Now, this, I think, is actually going to be a false example, but it's something that's interesting that sometimes gets cited in this context. Yes. So we're going to go to our old friend Pliny the Elder, first century CE Roman writer in his natural history, translated by John Bostock. Uh, Pliny is discussing in, in book 37 of his natural history, quote, the natural history of precious stones. And he comes to a section on what he calls smaragdus. Mm. I could have sworn that was one of the one of the wraith kings in the Lord of the Rings uh, saga, but I don't think so. Which anniversary gift is Smaragdus? <laughs> I can never remember. It's like it's like wood, uh, what ivory, Smaragdus. <laughs> right. So Smaragdus appears to be a term used for green precious stones, for barrel stones like emerald, or for jasper stones. Uh, and he, so he seems to be talking about emeralds. I think that's the way it's most often translated. And Pliny dwells for a while on how beautiful the emerald is and how restful to the eye, how soothing to look upon. Quote, even when the vision has been fatigued with intently viewing other objects, it is refreshed by being turned upon this stone. And lapidaries know of nothing that is more gratefully soothing to the eyes, its soft green tints being wonderfully adapted for assuaging lassitude when felt in those organs. By those organs, I think he means eyes. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, getting to, to the, the part that's often cited as, as emerald sunglasses, but actually appears to not be. He writes, quote, when the surface of the smaragdus is flat, it reflects the image of objects in the same manner as a mirror. The emperor Nero used to view the combats of the gladiators upon a smaragdus. Upon a smaragdus being key here, perhaps. Right. So this would have been the first century CE, and it's been cited as an early use of tinted transparencies in the sun. The idea that Nero was maybe watching the net fighters and the pursuers, the secutors, through gems like lenses. So just, I guess, try to imagine he's holding emeralds over his eyes and looking through them like lenses to filter out some of the glare. I think I also saw an artistic uh, interpretation of this where you see the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the portly uh, emperor there uh, uh, all in his finery and he's holding up something that looks like, uh, it's almost like um, opera uh, 
uh, binoculars, you know, except it's just one emerald that he's holding up to his eye. I'm thinking with the green and that image you're describing, this has got to be the inspiration for David Lynch's depiction of Baron Harkonnen in his adaptation of Dune. Oh, does he have an emerald? Uh, well, everything's green around him. Oh, okay. It's like his his rooms are green. He's got this green environment. He's kind of a Nero-like figure. But anyway, I, the reason I said this was a false choice is because it sounds to me like in the context – Pliny meant that Nero, if this story is even true, watched the fights as reflected in the surface of the smaragdus like a mirror uh, because he was just talking about how it reflects like a mirror. And this would still have probably some some like sun dampening effect, right? Just try to imagine something reflected in emerald. It's not going to be reflected in a blinding way. Uh, but so he's looking at that since the emerald reflects less light than the source provides. I was looking at a text uh, titled The Origin and Development of Spectacles by C.J.S. Thompson. And this is an older text. This is from 1937. But he also mentions the Nero story. And he definitely argued, too, that it was probably a case where Nero just liked to watch the festivities colored green, um, (laughs) which, uh, you know, via the emerald, uh, and that he gained no sun shading from it. And, yeah, I think my suspicion here is that uh, based on some recent research we did for Stuff to Blow Your Mind about gladiatorial combat, uh, it was for our episode on the Trident, um, you know, there, there, there was, if you're a fan of both the uh, sort of the, the, the sporting combat of, of the, the gladiatorial um, spectacle, as well as like the drama and all these other ridiculous aspects of it, you're going to be, you, you might you might gain something from looking out at this uh, combat between men dressed as fish, men using nautical weapons, and then adding a green overlay on that. Um, <laughs> I could see where uh, where the, the green tint could perhaps be uh, be helpful in that uh, that particular mode of entertainment. What you're saying is taking on a decidedly Lynchian vibe. I I, I think I think the connection is there. <laughs> Now, um, Thompson also points out that while the Romans certainly suffered from eye problems and had their own treatments for those ailments, there's no uh, mention in the work of, say, uh, Celsus of artificial sight aids. He mentions that in writings prior to the 13th century, uh, one finds only occasional mentions of magnifying glasses, so the use of some sort of a lens to uh, look at finer details or perhaps, you know, holding it up to uh, a text. But Uh, you don't see mention of spectacles. Uh, By the way, he also wrote that there was no evidence that lenses were known to the ancient Egyptians or the Hebrews. However, we do have a very early magnifying glass, or depending on who you ask, perhaps a fire-starting glass, something that you use to refract uh, the rays of the sun, you know, to start a a small fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the kind of thing that children uh, may sometimes do uh, when trying to burn ants. Hopefully not to ants. Hopefully not. I mean, you know, one has to be careful. But um, at any rate, uh, this particular lens, uh, the Nimrod lens, is a 3,000-year-old crystal unearthed in 1850 by Austin Henry Layard in the uh, Syrian palace of Nimrod. Uh, however, uh, we, we're also not sure. It might have simply been a decorative uh, element. It might not have been used. Uh, and at any rate, it's not tinted. Okay, so we're not talking about sunglasses. Here. Right, but we are talking about like a crystal that may have been – that people may have looked through. Now, you have to ask your, your, the question, like, to what extent did they just look through it because it was cool? Like, what's more mystical than holding up some sort of a, a you know, gleaming crystal, even if it's clear, and watching how the world is distorted ever so slightly? 
Now, another thing that's worth noting is that we've been talking about lenses and tinted lenses, but obviously people came up with ways of protecting their eyes from the sun, uh, having accessories beyond just their hands and their eyelids and stuff to protect their eyes from the sun long before there were there were tinted glass or plastic lenses or anything. For example, hats and ah, umbrellas. That's course, obvious, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a much more ingenious and much more interesting one is what I want to mention. The Inuit and Yupik peoples of the northern circumpolar regions, today Canada, Alaska, Greenland, and Russia, have for centuries made these ingenious devices known as snow goggles. Yes, and, and I, I want to come back to what we said earlier about lumens before we get into this because I think this really drives home the necessity that led to the invention. Uh, so in an indoor environment, a human is typically, typically going to encounter 400 to 600 lumens. That's the intensity of the light. Um, and our comfortable level for lumens, it's, it's going to go up to around 3,500. If you're in the shade on a sunny day, you're probably encountering around 1,000 lumens. Sunny day out on, say, a highway or other reflective surface, you know, we all know what it's like to drive on like a really sunny day. You almost have to have shades. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably going to deal with something like 6,000 or more uh, lumens. Uh, 10,000 lumens is the danger zone where you really have to start worrying about the, the health of your eyes. But a snowfield on a sunny day, you're talking uh, 12,000 plus lumens. And this is where you enter the domain of potential snow blindness. Right. And this is, of course, because of the reflective power of white snow, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it can create almost a kind of double sun effect, sun above and sun below being reflected back up. Uh, whereas, you know, a, a normal patch of ground that's got, say, grass or just open soil might reflect about 10% of the UV rays coming from the sun. Snow can reflect not quite 100%, but something like close to 100% of it, nearly doubling your UV exposure. And so if you are, say, living in in northern regions where there's a lot of snow cover – one thing that works in your favor is that for much of the year, the sun doesn't get super bright, right? It doesn't get super high in the sky. It doesn't get super direct. But it will in certain parts of the year where there is still a lot of snow cover on the ground. So when you've got those things working together, say bright sun, heavy snow cover, maybe in the springtime when the sun is out high in the sky, proper eye protection is incredibly important. And not just because it's difficult to hunt or see where you're going uh, when the sun's reflecting off the white snow and there's blinding glare and everything. But it's what you mentioned. There's this risk of snow blindness, which is also known as uh, photokeratitis. So as we mentioned earlier, part of natural sunlight is ultraviolet radiation. And ultraviolet radiation can damage the cornea. It can damage the conjunctiva, the outer surfaces of the eye, just like it can damage the skin. And this is why photokeratitis is often described as something like, quote, sunburn of the eye. Symptoms include pain, a feeling of having like irritants or foreign bodies lodged in the eye, tearing up, swelling and redness, light sensitivity, and sometimes even truly temporary loss of vision. That's where the blindness comes from. And so if you need to be doing stuff out in the snow where the sun is bright, this this is going to be a problem. And snow goggles fight this problem with a very smart design. They're typically a a carved frame, usually made from animal bone or walrus tusk, sometimes from driftwood or sometimes even from like strange materials like uh, I saw one that I think was from baleen from a whale. And uh, this frame fits tight over the eyes so that light doesn't get in on the sides or the top. And then light is allowed to enter through two very wide, very narrow slots carved in the middle of the goggles, which are sometimes darkened on the inside with a material like soot. 
and these narrow slits allow the person wearing them to see without exposing their eyes to too much glare or UV radiation. And some alternate versions also have uh, have multiple slits, uh, more like, like shutter shades or Venetian blinds or something. They're not unlike the sort of novelty plastic 1980s sunglasses, uh, you know, where they, <laughs> yeah. where you just had, you had no glass, no lens. Shutter just shades. Just these slits, yeah, so shutter shades, uh, which, uh, yeah, it, you, you look at the, especially the 1980s versions of these and it's easy to just think this is ridiculous. This is the, this is the, the, the sunglasses. This is eyewear is a purely decorative element, and to a certain extent, it's true. But they do have a certain functionality as well. Yeah, and in many ways, a, a highly effective functionality. I mean, this if you don't have tinted glass to work with, this is a genius design. Yeah, and and the the necessity that led to it, like like this would this would be the kind of environment that would necessitate sunglasses um, in, in a way that uh, other parts of the world did not. Right. All right, well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll discuss uh, some more curios from the, uh, uh, the, the history of invention uh, in regards to the sunglasses. All right, we're back. Now, another frequently cited uh, example of, of sunglasses, early sunglasses use, uh, in, involved them not being used to protect against the sun or perhaps in any way affect vision, but that they were uh, allegedly used uh, just to hide your eyes from others. This, in, is, this is a crucially important part of sunglasses. Oh, we yeah. could not ignore it. I mean, think of all the times you've worn sunglasses. And there are times where, yeah, you wear them to protect your, your eyes. There are times when you wear them to uh, to see better in a high light intensive environment there are times when you do it to look cool mm-hmm. but there are times when say i've i've worn them for instance on the train before uh when even when the train is underground because it kind of makes me a little invisible yeah. if i have my sunglasses on my uh, my earbuds in then i am like less visibly present well you it means you can look around the world around mm-hmm. you without ever unequivocally being caught looking at someone or something. Yeah. It's a natural human tendency to want to look around and see who's around you. Yeah. But like if you get caught looking at somebody, that's always awkward, especially if you've got some kind of social anxiety. You right. Don't, you don't want to like make that eye contact and be like, oh, we just both looked at each other at the same time. Right. And if you're on the train, uh, sometimes you need to look at the weird person on the train. <laughs> and if you're not wearing sunglasses and you're doing this, that weird person might be you. Right. So it's, it's just a, a great solution for for everybody involved. So multiple sources report that Chinese judges wore smoky quartz glasses to hide their eye expressions from the court during the 13th century. Hmm. So this would have been during the Song Dynasty, 960 through 1279 CE. Uh, so I was looking around a little bit about this, and uh, Harvard's uh, Kaiming Chu wrote uh, the following in 1936 in The Introduction of Spectacles into China, which, uh, which deals, um, you know, in large part with just spectacles in mm-hmm. general. And if we come back and discuss spectacles uh, on the show uh, specifically, I'll, we'll probably return to this and, uh, and other sources. But uh, he cites uh, Chinese writings uh, that indicated that, quote, under the Song Dynasty, judges in deciding cases in the court used rock, crystal, or quartz to read illegible legal documents in the sun. So Mm. here, the idea seems to be that they were using them for magnification instead or perhaps in addition to um, shielding their eyes uh, from uh, other people at the court. Well, it it specifies in the sun, so that would seem to... 
make it sound like they were trying to shield their eyes from from glare. Perhaps. So I yeah, this one this leaves me confused though as to like what was actually going on. Or or was it a case where, for instance, these spectacles were arranged for reading in the sun or for some sort of magnification purpose, but then they realized, oh wait, these also shield our eyes and it makes uh, judging a little easier. Right. Well, you can absolutely see how sunglasses would, and we'll get more into the psychological effects later on, but you can see how sunglasses would be helpful if you were trying to give the appearance of impartiality. You know, right. If you're a judge, you want to hide any sign of your face showing emotion in reaction to arguments or something like that. I'm, right. I'm not sure that's the reasoning here, but you can see how it could be. Right, and it, you still remain, you still retain a portion of your humanity in a way that you wouldn't if you were wearing, say, a hood or an iron mask or some other uh, um, uh, 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 covering for your face. Now, uh, I looked at another text, uh, Old Chinese Spectacles by Otto Durham Rasmussen, and there's a discussion of methods used to grind, quote, crystal, smoky quartz, and a variety of rose quartz into lenses. And uh, apparently Marco Polo reported Chinese lenses in 1270, stating that people used lenses of quartz or semi-precious stones to aid their sight. Okay, but here we're still talking about not just like casual usage among the people, not fashion usage, mm -hmm. but like specialized cases and in some cases seeming to be some kind of magnifier or sight aid. Right. Yeah. And definitely a, a, like a premium item that would be used uh, by a specialist. And in fact, it does seem that also in like Europe and the United States, tinted glasses did exist some in, in the past few centuries, but they were not widely used and certainly not outside some kind of corrective or medical context or specialized research context until the 20th century, right? Yeah, I mean, sunglasses have become such a a fashion symbol, it, it is easy to forget the the necessity of them, uh, even if we're not dealing with just the, the, the basic ideas of, oh, it's like a super bright day or you're in the middle of a, of a snowfield. Um, because tinted lenses can assist people with low vision, and they're often prescribed to people with ocular diseases such as age-related uh, macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, cataract, retinopathy, cone dystrophy, and oculocutaneous albinism. Yeah, I've also seen references to tinted lenses being rec recommended for, say, people who were undergoing some of the symptoms of syphilis or yes. something mm -hmm. like that, uh, which makes me wonder if there's a connection with uh, – I have to go to a movie in, in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula where Gary Oldman oh, as Dracula yeah. wears those tinted lenses in the – I guess that's supposed to be the 19th century in England – yeah, well, I mean, I, as I've uh, I've read before, that there are theories, and I don't, this is again just a, a theory that um, that Bram Stoker could have had syphilis, and that that might have, on some level, informed his writing of Dracula. I don't remember him mentioning tinted spectacles in the book, did he? Do I, I do not recall that being a detail of the book per but se. It's, it's definitely there in that movie. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's it's interesting. It's an interesting choice. Why ever Coppola did it. Um, but for modern sunglasses, it's hard to say that they were actually exactly invented at any particular time because, we, as we mentioned, 
Various kinds of shaded or tinted lenses had existed for a while for various specialized uses. It wasn't until the 1920s, I think, really, when commercial sunglasses and tinted goggles for driving often uh, really became popular. And then especially, it seems, in the 1930s when commercially produced sunglasses became popular in the, in the United States due to there being a fashion item worn by the rich and the glamorous. Now, if we want to focus briefly on the idea of how sunglasses actually work, I feel like you can you can take a couple of approaches here. You can go the very simple route, or you can go the incredibly tedious route. Right. And how do we how do we avoid those two? Uh, well, we can. I, I think what we'll do is we'll try to we'll try and hit the high notes here. Okay. And and just remind everybody if you want a more in depth discussion of how sunglasses work, there's actually a How Stuff Works article. Uh, how sunglasses work. Oddly enough, that's the title of the article. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, and it's it's a pretty yeah, it is a pretty good one. It takes you through a lot of the more optical details, like essentially to really understand how. Uh, sunglasses work, you need a, like a full refresher on how light works. And that's what this article provides, and that's what we do not have time to provide here today. But uh, we talked about lumens already, uh, and we've talked about just basically how sunglasses modify incoming light uh, to your eyes. Now, there are different ways that different types of sunglasses do that. Right. Uh, modern sunglasses especially depend on a number of different methods. There's tinting, polarization, photochromic lenses, there's mirroring, scratch-resistant coating, anti-reflective coating, and UV coating. Tinting, though, is largely what we're talking about here, uh, and it's certainly key to the older methods of lens-based shades. Gray tint uh, is generally popular because gray tint reduces the overall amount of brightness with the least amount of color distortion. Because this, this was actually a really interesting thing to, to read up on because when you think about the color of shades, it's mm -hmm. easy to just think that it's just purely um, – uh, you know, a fashion choice. Am yeah. I going to have brown? Am I going to have gray? A, maybe a mood choice. Yeah. Like, are you Nero and you want to see the gladiator fights in green because you like green? Uh, yeah, maybe I like rose-tinted uh, rose glasses. There's actually, oh, now I'm remembering that I have been into various new age stores mm -hmm. where they sell um, glasses that are tinted with, and, and they, they come with like documentation to tell you about how this particular tint will affect your mood. Oh, like in a like a magic stone power kind of way, like it has the powers of the the supposed powers of these crystals embedded in the glass. Oh yes, there's definitely a, a new age crystal vibe to it, but also I think may, maybe there's a they were incorporating a little bit of like color theory as well. How do I get diamond sunglasses? <laughs> I just want to look through dark diamonds. I want to say that. Um, the dark crystal Scrooge sunglasses. McDuck had those. Didn't oh, they? really? Maybe. But well, I want to say that there was like a uh, like a part from the cartoon that showed when it played all the clips at the beginning that he had like diamonds stuck in his eyes. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay, but I think yeah, you wouldn't want diamonds stuck in your eyes. That'd be pointy. <laughs> um, but but anyway, the the, the take home here is that uh, different color, di different tinted uh, lenses do different things. They interact with light in different ways. So again, gray. Um, is not going to really distort color all that much. Uh, meanwhile, yellow or gold tints reduce the amount of blue light while allowing a larger percentage of other frequencies through, uh, but they can also create a kind of glare known as blue haze. Uh, the yellow tint virtually eliminates the blue part of the spectrum and has the effect of making everything uh, bright and sharp. Amber and brownish tints reduce glare, and uh, they have uh, molecules that, that absorb higher frequency colors such as blue. 
in addition to UV rays. Green tints on lenses filter some blue light and reduce glare, and they offer the highest contrast and greatest uh, uh, visual acuity. I guess that's a thing we hadn't mentioned much already is that certain types of light filtering could actually sharpen images and reduce blur. Such as at the gladiatorial uh, <laughs> combat. <laughs> you know? Who knows? I don't know if that worked. But, no. Well, no, that makes me think, uh, you know, there are these stories from the past of people going to the movie theaters with sunglasses on, right? You'd go sit in the movies and watch through sunglasses. I wonder if some people were trying to see a sharper image somehow. Hmm. Now, the oldest method of, of tinting de depends on constant density. Now, what does that mean? Uh, so this is a uniform tinting throughout the lens. Nowadays, we'd have to wear those shades over the uncomfortable 3D glasses that we're already wearing, right? Let's say you're heading up a chain gang <laughs> that's, uh, that's got Luke in it. Oh, yeah, you're talking about old cool hand Luke and the, the man with no eyes, that, uh, that chain gang guard where he's always wearing those, uh, those perfectly mirrored shades and just seems to have no soul. Exactly. Or at the other end of the spectrum, let's say you're just trying to look super cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many reasons people wear sunglasses that don't have that much to do with blocking out the sunlight. Sunglasses, I think, have a profound psychological and cultural impact, and we should talk about that when we come back. All right, we're back. So we're talking about the legacy of sunglasses, uh, what are they doing psychologically and culturally? Now, one thing is that human behavior and self-image pretty clearly are influenced by some interplay between our ongoing senses of seeing and being seen, right? Mm -hmm. At any given time, you're potentially seeing something and you're potentially being seen. And how you feel about those things is going to affect your confidence, your relation to other people, maybe your generosity, as just one strange example, just, just think about all the ways that things feel different if you're viewing them simply through some kind of barrier or screen. Like the way that your relationship to the world changes when you're looking at that world through a car windshield. You, you know what I mean? How yeah. being, being inside a car looking out at the world fundamentally changes how you think about that world as opposed to being in the exact same place but not looking through the glass of a windshield. Yeah, like it's an entirely different scenario if you're just, say, um, you know, at a summer camp just walking through the woods. But then if you're wearing a hockey mask while doing so, <laughs> it changes everything. Well, no, it really does. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and it's not just the act of, say, stalking through the woods or the act of driving. It also seems to be something about that barrier. And likewise, sunglasses can be a kind of shield or barrier or blind that has psychological effects on the person wearing them and the person they interact with. Think again of the Chinese courtroom example. You could see in a maybe uh, in a maybe well-meaning or benevolent way that a judge hiding their face could be a way to try to show impartiality or neutrality, not show emotional reactions to arguments or statements or evidence. On the other hand, you could say that a judge covering their face could be some kind of power move, right? Mm. You know, the judge says, you will not have access to my humanity. I will look upon you, but you will not look upon me. And even though they're not technically the judge, the, um, uh, you know, we do see this with our, our, our law enforcement uh, figures, right? And those chain gang figures like the man with no eyes or the uh, clearly the Cool Hand Luke inspired character in the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, where you often see like fire reflected in his dark shades, but never his eyes. Yeah. 
And there is actually research on the effects of sunglasses on human behavior. Yeah, I was looking at a 2010 University of Toronto study that found that people wearing sunglasses were less generous. Uh, Now, this was via a very small experiment in which participants were given a small amount of money to divvy up between themselves and another individual. And... um, and, and uh, yeah, they found that if you were wearing the sunglasses, you were a little stingier with the money. In, in a way, it's like they could see less of, of you and therefore there was less to be lost in, uh, in, in, uh, in dishing out less money. Well, it's this feeling of being inside and being disconnected, I yeah. think, that has something to do with that. I mean, it's the same way that you are much – I mean, not, maybe not you, but I would suspect you, like most people, are just less generous when thinking about the people around you when you're in a car. You ever notice how like if you if you were walking past somebody on the sidewalk and they got in your way, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be like, what's wrong with you, you idiot? Oh, yeah. You know, get out of my way. But people in cars say stuff like that all the time. I think it has something to do with like looking out through that screen on the world. It creates this barrier that undercuts your generosity and connection with other people outside as humans and turns them more into like obstacle stimuli. Yeah. Now, another thing we should mention is that this study does follow in the tradition of uh, Philip Zimbardo's famous Stanford prison experiment, uh, which uh, it's easy to forget because this is like the less – <laughs> powerful detail of that study. but I, I mean, I think I have read that there there are a lot of people who look back on that study and think, you know, we shouldn't draw too many conclusions mm-hmm. from it. I think I don't remember exactly what the criticisms are now, but I think it it is it has been critically reappraised. Right. It is it is a study that was that, that certainly has a has a long legacy unto itself. Uh, a lot of people have revisited it uh, that in, in cases have had uh, issues with it, but it did entail the use of mirrored sunglasses. Those assigned to play the roles of guards in that uh, uh, experiment were given sticks and sunglasses. What and b- basically the issue is that. In that experiment, some people were assigned to play the role of prisoners and some people were assigned to play the role of guards. And they found that even just being given these fake roles, supposedly the the people really took on their roles and like the guards became brutal. Well, you know, no matter what we we think about the Stanford prison experiment, well, we do have plenty of studies in enclosed cognition and the ways that various – cultural uniforms change the way we think about ourselves, our own abilities, our roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and typically those experiments include things like giving somebody a doctor's coat and a clipboard. Yeah. Uh, but, Increases their sense of authority. Yeah. But in this bit, you can look back at the Stanford Prison Experiment and say, well, uh, a stick and some sunglasses, this is kind of, to a, a certain extent, the, the uniform of the guard. Uh, that is, so how many, in how many cases are sunglasses a part of a uniform uh, official or unofficial, that have certain attributes that we perhaps take on when we wear them and we're thinking about that particular uh, archetype. For instance, it could be something like just the cool cat who's wearing shades. Uh, you know, maybe we're just thinking about David Caruso uh, putting those those, uh, those deal-with-it shades on and saying something cool. Well, that's another good question. Why are sunglasses so generally perceived as cool? I've read about this and, mm-hmm. you know, one of the ideas out there is that sunglasses are perceived as cool because, as we've been talking about, they limit people's access to your emotions and to your reactions, right? They yeah. they make you appear more static. When other people can't read your expressions, you appear more, you know, impassive, more confident, more cool. Yeah, more stoic. I mean, you know, the old saying is what the, the eyes are a mirror into the soul, you know? Yeah. The eyes – 
our eyes are an important part of how we communicate with people, and they can there can be a certain vulnerability. Uh, there there are various ways that we can we can just have like dumb staring eyes, and if you're wearing shades, nobody can see that confused look in your eyes. It's a type of social psychological armor. Yeah. In some ways, quite literally, right? Yeah. I mean, they're a way to hide. Uh, I, I was also looking at a 2013 article published in Psychological Science, a journal of the Association for Psychological Science. And in this, researchers from the Chinese University of Hong Kong found that the participants who uh, relived an embarrassing experience tended to prefer large, dark-tinted sunglasses. And they also found that embarrassed participants expressed greater interest in sunglasses as well as restorative face creams. Hmm. So again, they're like both exercises in covering your face with something. Um, now, this study was conducted with only Chinese participants, so the authors pointed out that you know, they're, they're you know, very likely going to be certain cultural elements to, uh, to these test subjects that wouldn't be present in, in other test subjects. Of course, that's always the case. I mean, a right. lot of study, studies are just done on American college students. Yeah, just, there might be cultural issues there as well. Exactly. But uh, but I do feel like this in general it does I think it matches up with a lot of our experiences. Uh, if if you're going out in public and you've been crying, wearing sunglasses is the way to go. I mean mm -hmm. uh, we've all had situations too where you're just feeling you maybe you're just feeling a little shy or emotionally vulnerable. Putting on sunglasses, even if your eyes are not puffy from tears, it's a way of like disconnecting and feeling a little safer and being just a little less up in the face of the world. It's putting the screen up. Yeah. Now, I could be wrong about this, but I also feel like that there's perhaps some interesting connection between our preference for sunglasses and the way that we experience so much of our lives through screen devices now. Mm. You know, that that the sunglasses introduce this idea of looking at the world through a kind of barrier or screen, and we're constantly doing now social interactions on phones, on computers, on devices where we're also interacting with the world through a screen uh, I, I don't know if there's anything interesting to tease out there, but it feels it feels right to me. Huh. You know, I was just thinking of another thing. Have you ever encountered somebody, internally we're talking about people we don't know that well or even celebrities, but people who you never see without their shades and then when you finally do, it's a little unnerving because mm -hmm. you're like, oh, is that what your eyes look like? It's like seeing Kiss without their makeup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it becomes such a part of their identity, you know? Um but it also it, your, their identity becomes this slightly less human thing. You know, there's like the stoic-eyed, uh, dark-eyed uh, country music star, and then mm -hmm. if you re remove them, you're like, who's that guy? Who is the one who always wore sunglasses? Was it Roy Orbison? Did he always have sunglasses on? Yes, I believe he did. Uh, another one is uh, Hank Williams Jr. Oh no, always wore sunglasses. <laughs> but I believe uh, that was, uh, if I'm, if I'm, if memory serves me correctly, part of that was due to an injury he sustained as well. Oh really? Yeah. Well, I think another way that sunglasses lend a sense of coolness and maybe even celebrity or glamour to people is that they increase a sense of mystery, right? I, yeah. I, that's sort of what you're getting at here. Well, right? yeah, because at the other side, what do their eyes look like? Yeah. What is it like to have a personal connection with this person? I don't even, I don't, I don't even know. Who dare stares into the eyes of Bocephus? <laughs> it's like Medusa. Yeah. Um, I, speaking of psychology and sunglasses, I also read a 2014 University of Siena study, uh, Siena in Italy, uh, and they made a connection between panic attacks, specifically panic disorders, and fear of bright lights. Hmm. And so people who experience uh, uh, panic attacks and, 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 and have a panic disorder, they said, often find comfort in the use of sunglasses. That's interesting. I wonder what the, I wonder what the causal ordering there is. Mm. 
Is it like uh, they find comfort in sunglasses because they're afraid of bright lights or they're afraid of bright lights because they find comfort in sunglasses? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, because, yeah, there's so many – now that we've discussed all these various uh, just psychological elements that could be in play from the enclosed cognition to even just personal identity. Like if you wear sunglasses so much that they are just a part of who you are, then it, it makes sense that you would feel naked without them. Maybe you end up just wearing your sunglasses at night, much like uh, Corey Hart did. Are you lonely just like me? <laughs> Mercy. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, that is the episode of Invention for this week. Uh, we do hope that you will check out inventionpod.com. Uh, that is where you'll find uh, the existing episodes of the Invention Podcast. You'll also find links out to our social media accounts. Uh, and if you want to talk about uh, this episode inside of a Facebook group, uh, you should go to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module because uh, that is where uh, we are known to hang out and discuss episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but we're also happy to talk about episodes of Invention. Huge thanks, as always, to Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this show and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Thank you.